Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning begins in the Old Testament. I invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, and that's found on page 802 in the Bibles that we provide. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the, few, the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts, that all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is in 2 Corinthians, that's chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, and that's found on page 968 in the Bibles that we provide. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson is taken from <clears throat> Luke chapter 16. You'll find this on page 875 of our Bibles. Luke chapter 16. Let me just note something before we read this, <clears throat> read this together. Uh, if, if you all are familiar with Thomas Jefferson's Bible, you know that he went through the New Testament and cut out everything that was supernatural, everything that could not be explained in modern terms. <clears throat> and it left him with tremendous amount of practical advice, but nothing that could save him. I sometimes think, reading Christian books written in the past 20, 25 years, that many of us have done the opposite. 
we have simply kept everything Jefferson cut out of his Bible, but have neglected virtually everything that he kept. Uh, we want to celebrate salvation, but not hear from the Lord what that life of salvation is to look like, how we are to live. And I would suggest that the placement of Luke 16 is a warning against doing that. If you know what's in Luke 15, it's one of the most beloved passages in the Scripture. It opens with all the Presbyterian pastors, because that's what the Pharisees and the scribes really were. They were the Presbyterian pastors of their day. They're all criticizing Jesus because Jesus is choosing to spend his time and to eat with people they consider scandalous sinners whom he shouldn't even be seen with, instead of spending his time eating and talking theology with them. And as a result of their critique, Jesus tells three stories. He tells about a lost coin and a person who leaves everything to find that lost coin, and when he finds it, comes home rejoicing, talks about a lost Sheep, or she, it's a woman who loses a coin, uh, talks about a lost sheep and a shepherd who leaves the 99, goes in search of the lost sheep. When he finds it, he comes home rejoicing, and Jesus each time says, so I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner is found than over 99 righteous. And then he famously tells about a lost son. And in this case, the son goes into a far country, squanders everything the father has entrusted to him as in dire straits, comes to his senses, returns to his father. And while he's still afar off, the father who has been looking, waiting, longing for his return, runs to meet him, puts a robe on him, sandals on his feet, ring on his finger, and brings him home to a feast and a celebration. And of course, it's told because of the elder brother, who is like the scribes and Pharisees, and like so many of us who want God to judge those whom we think are the bad, and instead, he welcomes the broken and sinners. Now, that is the message of grace at its core. We celebrate it. We love it. That's why it's so beloved to all of us who realize our own prodigal hearts and realize how far we've run from the Lord. And I would suggest that for many of us, our understanding of the gospel stops at the end of Luke 15. It stops, and we think that our life, until we're with him, is perpetually wandering off again, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, wandering away into a far country, and once again, cresting the hill, coming home, once again, he runs to us, puts the robe and the ring on us, when in fact, Jesus intended something very different for his disciples, and for that reason, having just told these three parables that emphasize how graciously God welcomes us. Luke writes, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Do you see the link? If you look right across the page at verse 13 of chapter 15, there is a son who squandered his property in reckless living. Now there is a man who is wasting his possessions, just as the prodigal had done. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, 
people may receive me into their homes. So summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Presbyterian pastors, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Gospel of Christ. That was pretty tepid, but I understand. It's a hard word and a perplexing one on first read, second and third readings. I want you to know Everything that I'm saying this morning, I'm saying to myself. That's always true. But it's especially true this morning. Perhaps some of you need to hear this word as much as I do. As I think and pray about what my response will be to the challenges of last week's mission conference. Max Myers told us that we're the light of the world. What does that mean? What is that to look like? What difference should that make in the living of my days? Jesus talked more about money than he did about anything else. And if you're like me, you could read the Bible, read the Gospels a hundred times and never notice it. I never noticed it until I was in seminary and several of my professors kept saying it and I finally realized they must be right and yet I still tend to read the New Testament, the Gospels, and not really realize how much Jesus talked about it, how important it was to him in his disciples' understanding what it means to be his disciple. And perhaps the reason is something that Tim Keller pointed to in his fine little book, Counterfeit Gods, when he said this, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. He's talking about greed. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for him. The Bible speaks of money and wealth 
what in this text Luke called unrighteous mammon, unrighteous money. It speaks of it in both a dark sense and a light sense. In the sense that we're being warned about in this and so many other passages, money is something that becomes an idol to us because it enables us to lay hold of the other idols of our lives, the other things that we think that we need in order to be secure and successful and happy. And so we think about it far more often than a Christian should think about it, to be true. I'm getting on close to retirement now, and I must confess that I think far too often about that, far too much about do I have enough put away yet? How's, is this going to last? I've got these awful genes that live to a thousand. You know, am I going to make it? Um, instead of hearing God's word and realizing that my view of money and things is really a mark of whether or not I trust in the Lord, whether or not I really believe that the Lord will provide for his people provided of course, that we're responsible in our following of him. There's also a light side to money in the Bible, and that's when we see ourselves as belonging to the Lord and realize that all that we have is his. And then we're seeking to be faithful stewards and using what he has entrusted to us, yes, for our children. We're supposed to. Paul said that someone who does not provide for his own children is worse than an infidel. So the Bible's not saying, forget about your kids. Uh, The Proverbs are filled with the kind of sayings as, go to the ant, you sluggard, and see how the ant knows to put away for winter. I mean, the Bible always balances itself beautifully. Luke 15 followed by Luke 16. Radical grace and invitation with a challenge to say, now how are you going to live now that you're home? Now that you're here? Now that much has been entrusted to you? Do you realize how crucial it is, how you live your days? Richard Foster, in another wonderful little book, this one written probably 20, 25 years ago, I love the title of it, Money, Sex, and Power. Have I told you how it was named that way? Foster is a serious writer on spiritual things and wanted to consider how the three monastic vows might be taken into the lives of people who have families and go to work and how we might learn from those monastic vows. So he wrote this book and entitled it uh, Poverty, Celibacy, and um, Obedience. And the publishers said, no one will buy that book. And they named it Money, Sex, and Power, and it sold like crazy. But it's a serious book, and in it, Foster says this about the light and dark side of money. God's ownership of everything. God's ownership of everything also changes the kind of question we ask in giving. Rather than how much of my money should I give to God, we learn to ask how much of God's money should I keep for myself. The difference between these two questions is of monumental proportions. Richard Foster, Money, Sex, and Power. There are three things that Jesus is very clearly talking about in these verses that we read. And I want to underscore those three things this morning and then 
finally simply ask the question, what should we do? How do we respond to Jesus' words? The first thing that Jesus says is really the theme of the first nine verses as he tells this parable. The parable, again, is about a steward, a man working for a wealthy man who is entrusted with his household and with his business, and his master is entrusted everything to him. And here he is pilfering, thinking that he can take some off the back and like a person running a Ponzi scheme, surely thinking, I'll be able to make it all back up before I'm caught. But word gets back to the master, and the master sends word and says, I've heard that you're being dishonest, that you're taking from me. Bring the books. I want to see you. I want you to spread the books out in front of me. You can't manage my household anymore if this is true. And so instead of trying somehow to make it right with the master, the guy knows he's a goner. I mean, he knows what he's done. He knows he can't make it up. And so instead of of trying to make good on that, he thinks, he's going to kick me out of here, and I've got to have some place to go. Oh, how much do you owe? Hundred. Write fifty. Here, paid in full. How much do you owe? A hundred. Write eighty. Here, paid in full. And so he goes through all of his master's debtors and writes off all their debts, And now he is the most popular man in that part of the state. I mean, everybody out there that owed the master loves him because, oh, how incredible, how compassionate. Perhaps they're thinking he was acting on the master's part. Maybe the master is now the most compassionate guy by reputation in the state. And we read that the master, when he learned what he had done, commended the dishonest servant. Not for his dishonesty. That's not Jesus' point. He commended him for his shrewdness in providing for himself a future with what was in his hands. Now this is, you know, you read this, you go, this is not like Jesus' other parables. What's going on here? I don't think I like this. But we mustn't get lost in the details. Jesus is making one point, and to make sure that we get it, he repeats it. He says, the children of this age are wiser than the children of light because they know to use unrighteous wealth to open doors, to make friends, to have a future. And he says, you use what's entrusted to you, so that you will be welcomed. He's not talking about our future here. He says explicitly in verse 9, so that they will welcome you into the eternal homes. He's talking about the life to come. He's saying, use your resources now. Spend money now. Make decisions now. Live now with a view toward eternity, live every day now in the light of eternity. That's his point. Well, that presents some real problems, doesn't it? Is he saying you can buy heaven? If you just give all your money to the Lord's work, then he's going to say, wow, that's great, come on. No. You read Scripture 
in the light of Scripture, and we'll see some things that would conflict with that idea. Is this a kind of um, first testament or, or first century version of prosperity gospel? If you give enough, God's going to no. Again, this must be read in the light of the rest of Scripture. There is one point being made, and the point is this. Are you living today? Are you spending today? Are you hoping and dreaming today? Are you investing today? Not just your money, it's just an indicator, but your life simply for your own pleasure or in the light of the day that you stand before the Lord and he tells you what your life looked like from his perspective. We say it frequently, but we always need to hear the gospel in the light of Matthew 25. That is Jesus' own description of the great day of judgment. And he doesn't say, you prayed a prayer, you belonged to Cedar Springs, you taught a Sunday school class, you preached many sermons, you traveled on mission. He doesn't say any of that. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Lord, when? When did we do that? Inasmuch as you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And you, depart from me. I don't know you. Because when, when I was in need, you were too busy caring for yourself and pursuing your own hopes and dreams, doing your own thing. You say, well, that's salvation by works. No, it isn't. Faith, if it is real, transforms a life. And that's what the Bible is constantly pressing in. That if you say you believe, but it is not yet beginning to transform the way that you live your life, if you say, I believe in Jesus, I'm trusting him for salvation, but you don't believe him when he says, this is how I want you to live, then you really don't believe in him at all. That's the thing. And we need to hear it. I need to hear it. You can spend a lifetime preaching thousands of sermons. That's Jesus' warning to his disciples at the end of Matthew 7. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we preach? Didn't we travel? Didn't we do stuff? Didn't we cast out demons? And he said in that day, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, for you didn't do the will of my Father. What is the Father's will? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was lonely, you didn't pass me by. When no one would open their door, you opened your door and welcomed me. Brothers and sisters, these are Jesus' words. And Jesus here is saying, yes, your father is prodigal in his love. He loves and welcomes the prodigal who gets up from the pigsty and comes. And in fact, unlike the parable, we believe the parable because the one who told it was the elder brother who did not stay home, but who left the father's house, came into the pigsty of this world and found us and led us home to the father. 
and put on us his robe, his sandals, his ring, and took all of our brokenness on himself. We believe that story, but that elder brother is now saying, how you live today matters for eternity. We all act as though the age to come is just a flat landscape where the only thing is to get in. And all I can tell you is the Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches reward. And we shudder at that because it sounds too much like what we're always warned about. But the Bible teaches it beginning and end. It teaches that how we live now matters. That's why Paul, in warning these super spiritual people in Corinth at the beginning of chapter 3 says some of you will be saved as if through fire because you've lived building with wood and hay and stubble and all of that must be burned away and you'll come in as it were smelling of smoke. That's where Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages, all of us before the Protestants broke out, got the doctrine of purgatory. They thought that was literal, that okay, there's going to be a fire and the dross must be consumed, the wood, hay, and stubble burned away. Now, I don't think it was talking literally, I, but I'd rather have people think that than think, you know, I don't care, just as long as I get in. I don't care if I get in with, the, with my clothes scorched. I don't care if I get a big crown, as long as I just get a headband. I just want to get there, and then I'll reassess. And the Lord Jesus says, don't do that. The scripture said, don't presume. Faith is not presumption. I've had people say, the way you preach, John, some people doubt their salvation. My response is, thank God. No one will ever be cast out who was worried about whether they would be let in. But many, Jesus said, will stand wondering why they are not welcomed because they had presumed upon a prayer that they prayed years ago and then spent all the rest of their life living for themselves. The second thing that Jesus says here very quickly in verses 10 through 12 is that you can't wait to live in the light of the future. Many of us think, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I gotta retire here. It's coming, it's coming fast. Do I have enough put away? What can I do? I could do, you know, once I have all that settled, once everything's paid off, you know, the kids out, this, out, we all live that way. Gotta get the kids, yes, we have responsibilities, we have debts, we must take care of those. We also have a certain amount of discretion. And we have a lot of discretion in how much we're willing to indebt ourselves along the way. Most of us do. Not all, perhaps. I'm not saying this to hit anybody. I realize I speak as an affluent person who has done very well off the gospel. May God have mercy on my soul. But what I do with that, how I live my life with that, matters not just for now, but for eternity. And so Jesus says, if you've been entrusted with a little, that's all you're accountable for. If you have what isn't really yours, that's okay. That's all you've been given. But how you handle that 
will determine whether you are ever entrusted with more. How you handle the little you have today will determine what you are entrusted with in the age to come. Jesus told a number of parables about that. You may be hearing this and going, that's easy for him to say, but I am so in debt and so under it. Hey, God knows your situation, and he does not ask you for what you don't have. Paul, if we read the whole extended correspondence in 2 Corinthians, makes that clear to the Corinthian church. He says, God doesn't ask you for what you don't have, but he does want you to give from what you have. Do you know what is the only miracle of Jesus told in all four Gospels? Think for a minute. See if you can imagine what it is. The feeding of the 5,000. Why? Because the whole theme of that is that the disciples were overwhelmed by all the need around them and by how little they had. They went to Jesus and said, all we have is a little bit of bread and a couple of fish. What is that among all of these? And Jesus did not say, well, you make it stretch. You figure it out. You put it. Jesus just said, give it to me. Give it to me. Give me what you have. And he met the needs. That's all he ever asks of his people. He never asks us for what we don't have. And he doesn't ask us to give to him what really we should be giving to others to pay off debts. He doesn't want to turn us into unrighteous servants. I remember when I was in seminary and our chairman of the mission department, Christy Wilson, preached a powerful sermon to us on faith promise, calling us as students, not to wait till we were out and ahead, but now, today, to be willing to give to mission, to trust God, and to ask him to put on our hearts how much we should give, and then to trust him and watch, and when it came in, not to waste it on ourselves. A few weeks later, one of the seminary students came in, and he said, it doesn't work. Christy, it was actually a couple months later, Christy said, why? He said, you preached that sermon. I was so convicted. I went home, and all the money that I'd set aside to pay my income taxes this year, I sent off to a mission, and I've been trusting God to return it, and he hasn't. Christy said, I didn't tell you to steal from the government. I told you to give what was yours. That's all the Lord is calling us to do, to give what is ours. And you may be thinking, but what I have is so little. I mean, it really, in the scheme of things, it really, it's not even a few loaves and fish. And so Mark, in Mark chapter 12, leaves us that beautiful picture of Jesus and his disciples one day sitting there across from the treasury of the temple. And they're watching all the wealthy people go and drop in their big bags of gold and silver and money and, you know, so impressive. And then this poor widow comes up, I'm sure just shamed that anyone would even see it, and puts in two tiny copper coins that together made a penny. And Jesus says, Amen, Amen, truly, truly. Whenever Jesus said that, he was saying, you listen, this is really important. Amen, Amen. I tell you, that poor widow has put in more than all the others. They look like, put in more? What are you talking about? 
And Jesus said, they put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, gave all she had. And I'm sure she walked away thinking, you know, does it even matter? But God, who multiplies the loaves and the fish, did mighty things with that sacrificial gift. God does that. God is looking at our hearts. I, a couple weeks ago, was down in Birmingham doing the mission conference, speaking for Briarwood Presbyterian, where a dear old friend of mine is pastor. And that's a great church. It's the mothership of the PCA, um, and just a great church, and has been a great mission church down through the years. But in the, the latter years of the founding pastors, a great godly man, uh, churches were People were going out to plant new churches, and a lot of things caused giving to go way down. And when my friend Harry came as the second pastor, they were really worried, can we keep our mission commitments? And it got worse and worse. They were only now having a couple hundred people even come to the mission conferences. They prayed, they strategized. And in his third year there, the offering at the end, they take the cards and count them and have a goal and everything, which is probably wise. Um, but they didn't have enough to cover even their responsibilities. And so the mission chairman went to Harry and said, look, we're going to have to drop a number of our missionaries and cut everybody by 10%, really pull back. We've entered a new day. And Harry said, not on my watch. I have some money put away for retirement. Stop paying me. Just put it there. Don't tell anyone. Just put it there. Sorry, Harry, if you ever hear this, I apologize. This <laughs> Don't have permission to tell this. But it so struck me. Because as soon as I heard that story, I thought, I would not have done that. God have mercy on me. It wouldn't have occurred to me. I would have said, okay, get the officers together. Time to twist some arms. Let's get... Okay, we're going we're gonna to do battle now. But Harry just said, just take this and pray. Well, of course, Tom Cheeley went back to the elders, called them together, said, let me tell you something. And the spirit just fell. Not just for that, but it changed the whole ministry. They had the biggest response Suddenly, as the elders stepped forward and started it, they had the biggest response they'd ever had in the history of the church, and they have year by year since. Because one person said, this is all I have, but it isn't really mine. So here, take it, use it. Final thing that Jesus says is you can't serve two masters. One of them you'll love, one of them you're going to despise. You can't serve God and money. And all the Presbyterian pastors laughed at him because they loved money. Except my friend in Birmingham. What about you? What about me? We sing these songs that express our great love of the Lord. But do we really love him? Do we really love the broken world around us that so desperately needs to know him? And what do we desire because of that love 
to give, do we yet understand that everything we have and are is his. It's his. And he's said, take this. I want you to care for your children. I want you to provide. And I think he's certainly given us as Americans the opportunity to enjoy the the beauty of the world he's given. That's not, I'm not, this isn't a call to asceticism. But he's saying, where am I in my kingdom in the midst of all of this? What, what matters to you? And what will most matter to us when we lie dying and realize all that's gone? Every year I go to, through my closet and I just say, what was I thinking? You know, what, I haven't worn this thing since I got it. Give it away. Give it away. It's an exercise not so much about giving away clothes, but about saying, what is wrong with me? I told Marianne this year, I'm just not buying anymore. I'm, I own whatever I'm going to be buried in, even if it's 20 years from now, 30 years from now. What difference does it make that Jesus gave himself for you in the way you plan your day and dream your dreams and spend your money? That's what I've been asking myself all week. What will be my response? And what will be yours? These are strange times of investment. And I'm sure every age is. But Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. That's what he's saying in this story of the unrighteous steward. Lay up your treasure where it's safe. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also.